0: And for the rest of us, if you have a Bible, you can open up please to Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 11. If you're using a Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's on page 831. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. 2,000 years of Christianity, and we in the church still haven't figured out who the real bad guys are. As we'll see in this passage, Paul tells us who they are, and it's not just in this passage. It's also in Galatians and 2 Corinthians and the book of Titus, and Jesus tells us repeatedly in the Gospels who the bad guys are. And given all these wonders or all these warnings, it's a wonder that after all these years we're still so confused about who the real bad guys are. Because the real bad guys aren't the liberals and the real bad guys aren't the conservatives. It's not that God doesn't care about politics or about big societal issues that they don't matter. They do. But you won't find a clear word from God in the New Testament pointing to a certain group of people in positions of power who have a certain political perspective as being the bad guys. In, in fact, the Old Testament holds up heroes like Daniel and Joseph who worked for some pretty wicked governments and actually sought the good of those governments instead of their demise. And the real bad guys aren't the Muslims. Of course, the Muslims weren't even around when the New Testament was written, but the clear message of the New Testament is that people of other religions are not the enemy. But but rather, they're folks who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, if there was ever another religion which qualified from a biblical perspective as a bad guy religion, it was the religion of the ancient Babylonian empire. The Babylonians were wicked people by biblical standards. But if you read the book of Habakkuk, it walks us through how God actually chose the Babylonians to be on God's side when it was time for God to punish his own people for their sin. And the real bad guys are not the ACLU and their secular humanist allies who are trying to take prayer out of schools and to erase Christianity from our nation. After all, back in Paul's day, the Romans were, were oppressing Christianity. I mean, Paul is in Roman change, even as he's writing this letter. But Paul never labels this obvious choice as the bad guys. Further, the real bad guys aren't the drug dealers, the criminals, the embezzlers, or market manipulators who roam America's streets and boardrooms. Now, that's not, of course, to, to discount or to, to minimize these and... and um, and others, and, and, and the wickedness and the havoc that, that they managed to produce. But what I'm pointing out is that the New Testament goes out of its way to warn us who the real bad guys are, the folks we should really be concerned about, and it mentions none of these groups. And so it's amazing to me that after two years, 2,000 years of Christianity, we still don't have it straight in the church who the real bad guys are. Maybe it's because the bad guys are people like us. They dress in the same fashions. They drive the same cars. They believe many of the same beliefs about politics, about what's important in life, about what's good and bad in the world. Maybe it's because the real bad guys are law-abiding, nice citizens. They wash behind their ears. They uh, say, please, thank you, and excuse me. Unless they're from New York, then nobody does. It, oh, that was, I, I, just, just among friends, right? We, um, but, but, you know, these bad guys, they're the kind of, of young people that you'd be happy to have your sons and daughters go out on a date with. They're those kinds of people. Or, or maybe it's because the real bad guys are religious people. And not just religious people, but model Christian church attenders. They listen diligently to the sermons. They laugh at all the right points. They, they take notes, many of them even. They put a tenth of, of their paycheck in the offering plate every week. They volunteer for ministries. In fact, there are many churches would be, which would be hard-pressed to keep their doors open if it wasn't for a good crew of these bad guys filling their pews and manning their ministries and committees. The real bad guys, according to the New Testament, are a certain kind of Christian. And in this passage, Paul helps us figure out exactly what kind of Christian they are so that we can watch out for them. Verse 1, Paul says, I've written this to you before, and it's no trouble for me to repeat it again, and it's a safeguard for you. And then Paul launches into a harsh tirade, warning us about the bad guys. I'm translating literally from the Greek here. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for the mutilation. Paul is getting fired up here. And whenever Paul gets fired up, we're meant to pay attention because there's something really important that we need to hear. And in this case, what we need to hear is who the real bad guys are. These dogs, these evildoers, this mutilation. Now, we miss the full irony and the surprise of these descriptors if we aren't familiar with the culture of the time. You see, the world back then was deeply segregated between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were God's people. They had God's law, God's word. They they lived good, moral, upright lives. The the Gentiles were pagan ignorant, evil, unclean people living in moral darkness. At least that's how the Jews saw it. And so the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. That's how many of the Jews viewed the Gentiles' moral state. But here's Paul telling the Philippians, who by and large were Gentiles, that they should watch out for the dogs. Who are these dogs that Paul's talking about? Well, let's keep reading. Next, Paul calls them Evil-doers. Who are these evildoers? Well, again, naturally, the Gentiles would quickly come to mind, or, or maybe Jews who'd so fallen from the faith that they lived like Gentiles. Then Paul goes on and calls these people the mutilation. This is a, a play on words here. The Greek word uh, Paul uses here is katatome, which sounds a lot like paratome, which is the word Paul uses in verse 3 in the very next verse when he says, but we are the paratome. Paratome means circumcision. We are the circumcision. Catatome means mutilation. Paratome, circumcision, of course, is, is a Jewish practice of carefully cutting off the foreskin of Jewish boys to mark them off as God's special covenant people. Catatome, mutilation is a lot more drastic, of course. Some pagan priests would actually cut and mutilate their bodies to try to get the attention of the gods. And so this act of catatome uh, was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. Also, Deuteronomy 23.1 said that if any man was mutilated to the point of emasculation, he was forbidden from even entering God's presence. So who are these real bad guys? The dogs, the, these evildoers, this mutilation? Well, they're exactly the opposite of who you'd think. Because as Paul makes clear in, in his play on words and by verse 3, the mutilators are actually the circumcisers; The evildoers are actually those who seem and claim to be righteous doers. The real dogs are actually not Gentiles, but some of the Jews. It, it's hard for us today to appreciate just how much Paul here is turning the world as they knew it upside down. Which is why I suppose that after 2,000 years of Christianity, most of us still haven't understood clearly who the real bad guys are. Now don't misunderstand me. Um, It's not Jews per se that Paul is speaking against here. Paul is not being anti-Semitic. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Rather, Paul is warning the Philippians against a certain type of person who happens to be a Jew, a specific group of Jewish Christians, in fact, who were going around telling Gentiles that they needed to get circumcised. And so, as we'll see, the reason that these are the real bad guys, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilation has to do with this group's belief about how Gentiles become good Christians. Now, that might seem really esoteric and irrelevant to us today. But as we'll see, it's actually very relevant, especially since most of us are Gentile Christians. So who exactly are these bad guys and and what makes them so bad? Well, piecing together what we learn about them from various places in the New Testament, here's what we know. They were sometimes called the Judaizers or the circumcision group. They were Jews who had come to follow Jesus, and they were earnest and they were they were devoted Christians now. They had a real missionary heart. They were willing to to sacrifice and strive to see people come to follow Jesus. And they had a big problem, this group did, with the Apostle Paul and the way he went about his ministry and mission work. You see, they believed that Paul preached a gospel of cheap grace, a a wimpy gospel, a, a soft gospel. Because you see, to be a part of God's people had always meant to be Jewish, to be circumcised, to to follow the Bible. And back then, the Bible was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And of course, the Bible, the Old Testament, told God's people how to live. It it had God's law. It had God's commands in it. And God's people, of course, lived by that law. They they circumcised their sons. They obeyed the Ten Commandments. They celebrated the Jewish feasts. They ate kosher, etc., You have to understand that that's what being a godly person looked like back then. It was just taken for granted. Just like we take for granted today that a godly person will read their Bible, will pray, will dress modestly, will avoid substance abuse, will attend church, etc. Sure, we, we can make some allowance for new Christians to be a bit rough around the edges, but, but as people mature in Christ, we expect them to look Christian, right? And that's all that these members of the circumcision group were doing in their own day and time. They, they, were, they were trying to help the, the pagan Gentiles who were very rough around the edges to start acting more Christian. And these circumcisers had a problem with, with Paul because Paul was perfectly happy to let the Gentiles stay far too rough around the edges, far too uh, sinful in their minds. And so as Paul traveled to various cities and, and he planted churches, he preached the gospel, and people came to follow Jesus, Gentiles came to follow Jesus, these circumcisers had a habit of going around behind Paul and, and trying to finish the job that Paul had started but hadn't finished. They were happy that Paul was converting these Gentiles to follow Jesus. That was great, but but they wanted to make sure that Christianity really took in these churches. That these new converts grew up in their faith, that they became more Jewish, that they were circumcised and and started obeying God's word. Now that doesn't sound so bad, does it? So why is Paul so violently opposed to these guys? Why does he call them dogs? Dogs? evildoers, the mutilation. Why does he insist repeatedly in his writings that they are the real bad guys? Answer, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Paul recognized that the circumcisers hadn't really understood what we have in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And so the circumciser's teaching was actually causing others to discount Jesus far too much, too. You see, the real issue, as Paul sees it, is this. What are you counting on to be acceptable to God? Because either you're good enough for God, or you aren't. Either God accepts you as one of his own, or God doesn't. There's no second class section on God's salvation airline. Either you're riding first class as one of God's people or you aren't even on the plane. You see, we're talking about a holy God here, someone with high standards, someone awesome and and exalted, someone who sees right through us and sees what we're really made of. And God has no second class. Either God already accepts these Gentiles fully as his first class people or God hasn't accepted them at all. The Bible gives us two helpful images here for thinking about this. Uh, One is political and the other is legal. First, the political image, it involves the idea of a treaty or a covenant. The way that God relates to his people is through covenants. Um, take, for example, in the political realm, a small kingdom who might make an alliance with a larger, more powerful kingdom. They, they sign a treaty, they make a covenant together, and the smaller one promises to be, to be faithful and loyal to the larger one, to, to pay its taxes and meet other obligations to this large kingdom. And the larger one, in turn, promises to protect and trade with the smaller one. And in a similar way, back in the time of Moses, God graciously offered to make a covenant with the Israelites. God said, ally yourself with my kingdom. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you a land of your own. I will bless you and protect you there. I'll provide for your needs. And in return, you worship me as your only God. Be faithful to me and obey my laws and my commands. As long as the Israelites kept this covenant, they were in with God. They were acceptable to God. They enjoyed God's favor. But if they broke the covenant, that was rebellion. That was trouble, and and they were no longer right with God. So uh, politics, covenant, that's the first image. The, The second image is legal, the law courts. Here God is the just judge. Because if God's people are alleged to have broken their covenant with God, there's no higher court that God can take them to to have the case tried. And so God himself has to be the judge. And so God judges whether we're innocent or whether we're guilty, whether we're covenant keepers or whether we're covenant breakers. Whether we're right with God, we're acceptable to God, or whether we're traitors and rebels who've broken the covenant. And this is where the word righteousness comes in. We see it in this passage. To be righteous means that in the court of law, God finds you not guilty. God declares that things are are right between you and God. God has nothing against you. Relations are still good. The covenant is still in force between you and God. If you're righteous, then you're acceptable to God there there, there's nothing else you need to do to be accepted things are good so here's the question how do we get righteousness How, how do we remain in right relationship with God and this is on this question is where Paul vigorously disagrees with the circumcision group for the circumcision group how to be righteous was straightforward you, you enter into a covenant with God and, and you be faithful to keep up your end of the covenant. You get circumcised, that's the sign or the mark that you're entering the covenant, and then you keep God's law. In verse 3, Paul calls this approach to righteousness, uh, he calls it the flesh approach. And for Paul, there's a double meaning in this word flesh. First, flesh refers to circumcision, having that little bit of your flesh cut off as a sign that you'd entered the covenant. But second for Paul, flesh also means everything else you do in your own efforts to keep the covenant with God. Flesh means human achievement. It means human earning to uphold your relationship with God. And as Paul puts it in verse 9, flesh means trying to have a righteousness of your own that comes from the law. So starting in verse 5, Paul then gives a list of, of what this flesh approach to righteousness might include. He tells us his own story. He says, hey, if you want to go the flesh route, if you want to play the flesh game, I will win hands down. I was circumcised on the eighth day, as the law requires. I was uh, I'm part of the chosen um, covenant people of Israel by birth. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm I'm a, a model Hebrew. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, one of those who kept God's law most strictly. In regard to being zealous and sold out for God, I was so sold out, I was killing people who I believed were a threat to God's way. And in regard to righteousness based on the law, I was faultless, I kept all the rules. From a flesh point of view, I did everything right. I beat the circumcision group at their own game. And yet, Paul continues, now that I know Christ, I have come to realize that all of that stuff is not how you get to be right with God. It isn't at all how you get God to accept you. No, how does Paul say we can be right with God? Verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Through Jesus Christ, God has provided a way for us to be right with God without our having to do anything. I once heard Bill Hybels put it this way. He said, there's due religion and there's done religion. Do religion is based on what we have to do. We have to, we have to uh, work. We have to try to earn and to keep God's acceptance. Done religion, on the other hand, is based on what God has actually done for us through Jesus Christ. When Jesus died for us on the cross, Jesus secured our righteousness. He made us right with God. And we receive that by grace as a gift when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And here Paul is um, insisting that done religion is the only way that you can actually be right with God. And then Paul goes on and he gives us a lesson in economics. We've talked about law and politics already. We're on to economics. Paul had told us in in verses 5 and 6 how he built up quite a bank account of of good, righteous, religious achievements and and credentials. And and now Paul tells us how he balanced those accounts when he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He took everything in his own flesh account, his religious pedigree and heritage, his uh, religious training and efforts, his uh, the, the esteem, the, the the status, the the ministry that he'd built, all of his efforts, day after day, year after year, to live and to walk faithfully, all of his passion and his his fervency. Paul took all of that, and he wrote it all off as a loss, as if the bottom had dropped out of that market and he'd lost everything. In verse eight, he puts it even more strongly. And here I have to say that the English translations don't do a very good job. They say that Paul considered it all rubbish or garbage. I suspect that, that translators render it that way because publishers know that a lot of circumcisers, a lot of the real bad guys, buy Bibles. And those types don't say bad words. Because the original Greek word that Paul uses here, skubala, is a bad word. It's a vulgar word. I think shit is pretty close. And that's not a word I would normally use in church, but but Paul does. God's word does, and so who am I to censor God? And and if that word bothers you coming from the pulpit, then, then you begin to get a small idea of how bothered the circumcisers were, how wrong it felt to them to have Paul's uncircumcised, dirty Gentiles in church acting like Gentiles in some ways. Paul says, that's how I used to feel too, but then I met Christ, and I put my trust in him, and now I consider all that religious wealth that I'd accrued to my account, I consider it all just a big market-crashing loss. No, more than that, I consider it all shit to be flushed down the toilet. Is Paul worked up here or what? And then he adds, not only all that religious stuff either, but everything else too. Respectability, education, friends, financial security, possessions, you name it. I consider everything a loss, he says. I consider everything skabala because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now I only want to gain Christ and to be found in him. Do you see how much Christ means to Paul? For Paul, gaining Christ is is gaining something far, far better, far more valuable than anything he had before. Why? Well, verse 9 again. In Christ, we gain a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. No longer do do we have to try to work or earn a right relationship with God. Because in Christ, we're totally in with God. We're we're flying first class. We're totally acceptable. In Christ, we're, we're right with God because God has said we're right. So Paul realizes that that means that the gentiles don't have to become Jews or get circumcised or start keeping the old testament law to be completely right with God if they believe in Christ they already are in Christ they're they're totally acceptable already just as they are and so are you if you put your trust in Christ To require the Gentiles to do any of these other things that the circumcision group was wanting them to do is to say Christ isn't good enough. It's to turn the Gentiles away from God's righteousness and to require them to go back and try to earn their own. And so if our trust is in Christ, not only do we not have to do anything to earn God's favor, but we dare not try. Because to to try would be to throw out the gift that God has already given us, to, to, to throw away what God has already done. And according to Paul, anyone who tells you otherwise is not a nice Christian who's just trying to help you along. No, they are the real bad guy. They are a dog, an evildoer, a mutilator, and you should watch out for them and avoid them at all costs. So then what? Well, when you realize what a treasure you have in Christ and you put your trust in Christ, then you want to know Christ, verses 8 and 9, to, to gain Christ, to be, to be found in Christ, to go further up and deeper in, as C.S. Lewis put it. As Paul puts it in verses 10 through 11, our, our last verses here, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To put our faith in Christ is is to know Christ, to identify with Christ, to become like Christ, And, and this involves two major components that Paul identifies here, or probably two movements is a better word. One is suffering and death, and the other is power and resurrection. These are the same two movements we saw last week in Christ's life when we looked at Philippians 2. Movement one Christ came down, Christ emptied himself of all of the honor and the privilege of being God. Christ took the form of a servant and and suffered and died on a cross for us. Movement two, Christ rose up again. Christ ascended to to reign as king overall in in glory and power and splendor. Suffering and power. Death and resurrection. To know Christ, to, to trust Christ, is to get close enough to Christ that we begin to participate in these movements ourselves. Often, not always, but often we do them in reverse order. God's merciful. Christ comes first into our life in power. He opens our blind eyes. He, he softens our hard hearts. He, he translates us from spiritual death to eternal life. God's power changes our lives. We begin living like Christ lived. We begin finding healing and wholeness. We, we, we begin then to have a ministry to others. And then, we also begin to experience Christ's sufferings. Christ calls us to die, to, to our pride, to our selfish habits. We begin to share in Christ's love for others. We, we begin sacrificing for their sake, serving them. We, we pour ourselves out in love to bless others. We experience persecution because of our identification with Christ. But but it never ends there in suffering. Because even when we're spent, even when we've died to ourselves completely, Christ just just raises us up anew as as his power works in us until one day we live with Christ in power forever. Sharing in that rhythm, those those moments of of suffering and power, those those movements of, of, of death, and resurrection is a big part of what it means to know Christ, to, to trust Christ, to, to be found in Christ. And so in the end, we actually become a much better people. But, but not because we're trying to earn God's favor, but rather because we already have God's favor in Jesus Christ and we're following and trusting in him. Just look at Paul's life. Look at all that Paul died to. Look at all he suffered for Christ and, and, and in Paul's love for others, for those he he sought to, to reach. Look at also at all the, the, the power that Paul experienced in him and, and through him because of Christ. Until finally, Paul looked forward to, to resurrection, to, to living eternally with Christ in his kingdom. And, and Paul wrote those famous words we looked at a couple weeks ago at the beginning of his letter to me to to live as Christ and to die is gain so have you learned who the real bad guys are don't forget watch out they're in churches they're trying to get us to settle for so much less a few rules here a few regulations there but Paul says have nothing to do with them Choose the wonderful riches of knowing Christ instead. Now, as we close, I may have shared this story with you. One of my favorite preachers, Ron Steele, tells how after years of rededicating himself to Christ in church, trying to be a better Christian each time, he finally realized after all of that what it actually meant to be a Christian. And this was his prayer. Dear God, I quit. (laughs) Maybe you've been trying to to earn God's favor and to get God to accept you. If you'd like to quit and to trust Christ and know him instead, to receive what he's done for you, to receive God's righteousness, then I'd be happy to talk to you, help you do that after the service today. Amen.